hey guys, we have a great episode here brought to you. And we just want to let you know, because we had so much to talk about, we decided to go ahead and split this episode into two parts. So you're going to listen to part one today. And part two is coming out soon, which we will feature STS perspectives and ways to look at this election. It's not science. It's not gambling. It's both. Welcome to the Science Slot Machine, a dangerous game of science, research, luck, and improvisation. This podcast is brought to you by students of the Science and Technology Studies Master Program at the University of Vienna. Even though gambling is largely forbidden here, we take our chances. Every episode, we pick a random topic from science and technology suggested by you, dear listeners. Then two teams split up to do research on this very topic from an STS perspective. In the end, the two teams present their findings, whether it's dog breeding or the history of sex toys. What a dangerous, thrilling, and insightful game this is. Now it's time to send us your topics. Pick whatever comes to your mind. We will deal with it, even if it's obscure or very niche. Challenge us. Simply send us an email at science at gmail.com. Again, it's science at gmail.com. No spaces. We look forward to hearing from you. Hello and welcome to the Science Slot Machine. I'm Constantine. I'm your host today, and I welcome here in the online studio Robbie. Robbie, how are you today? Hey guys, I'm actually feeling great and I'm very excited because I think so far that's the most interesting topic we have discussed. Thank you, Robbie. Then we, of course, we have Harry with us. Hi. Hey guys. And we have an exciting guest today. It's Hugh. Hello, Hugh. Welcome. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining in joining us and uh, so we appreciate you helping us out here a little bit because today's topic will be the u.s presidential elections so what is at stake here everyone is talking about it and we really want to know what's going on what is happening and how we, can we look at it from different perspectives perspective also from an sts perspective and it seems to me that um we have kind of expert knowledge here as well <laughs> as non-expert knowledge <laughs> you so, called me an expert i didn't say i was an expert i just want to point that out i want to clarify being a loudmouth american does not qualify me as an expert on anything but it means yeah, you I'm, will hear from me of course with expert i meant robin me <laughs> naturally <laughs> i agree okay is there any anything you might uh, want to drop beforehand before we start Uh, so how are you feeling today? That is also like uh, interesting to me. How are you feeling? Well, Costa, I'm glad you asked me today and not a few days ago. Um, today, I will say I'm rather stressed, but I think seeing as how things are going, I will be a little stressed for at least the next month, maybe two. So um, yeah, but today, good. Good to hear, Harry. What about you? <laughs> Um, honestly, I'm feeling like a typical woman in politics surrounded by men. So <laughs> I'm really, really much looking forward to this discussion. I think it's going to be an extremely interesting conversation that I'm going to learn a lot from. On a scale of one to 10, how excited are you to be talked over today? 11. 
That's good. So, Hugh, you're also fine. How are you doing? Uh, fine is perhaps too strong an adjective. I am reasonably calm and functional. And, I don't know, 15% more optimistic than I was yesterday, which is a huge improvement. So, growing like the virus. Anyway. And so, what made you 15% happier today? Honestly, it was just not going off a cliff yesterday. Like, the trends are continuing in the right direction. There haven't been many major surprises so far. There has been, as far as I'm aware, no direct or indirect violence perpetuated or perpetrated against people currently involved in the political counting. So, hooray! Lots of protests, which is perfectly fine. No violence. Right. Fingers crossed. Yes, maybe, guys, before we start with our discussion and our debate, Hugh, would you like to briefly introduce yourself to our listeners, uh, tell them what kind of background you have? You're also an STS scholar, simply so the people can gain, gain a perspective on what kind of angle you're defending today. Aww. Um, sure. Thank you. I am also uh, in the STS master's program with you wonderful people. My, before that, I have a bachelor in history and German language and literature. Personally, I identify as a progressive leftist um, with a whole lot of labels that are attached to that. But in my heart of hearts, I desperately want to be a neutral centrist that believes in the system. So there's this tension between what I think needs to happen to get to a fair and equal society and my natural inclination towards order and justice and trusting systems. And I feel like that's always intention and never more intention than right at this moment. Um, so that's a bit about me. Thank you very much, Hugh. Um, Harry Costa, would you like to also tell us where are you located exactly on the political scale? Are you leaning more towards the left or the right or are you neutral, if that's possible? I guess I'll jump in first so we can get the other American out of the way. Um, I think Hugh is really interesting. I identify a lot there. I think I would say that I'm much more of a radical leftist uh, and I don't have any quarrels about it. But I do think that there's something to be said about um, a pragmatic type of approach where I think I'm constantly confronted with my idealist type personality, which is my radical type and my pragmatist. Whereas, you know, there's somewhere I want to get to, but I do have an idea of what is actually possible in my lifetime and what is actually possible, more importantly, in my country. And I think I have to reconcile those two things quite a lot. And this election has really helped me do so. Yeah, well, if you ask me, it's difficult. Uh, I cannot do that in the scale in terms of the US. I don't know where I stand there. But uh, in terms of European politics and my personal political attitudes, I would say I'm far left. <laughs> I'm What's far the difference left. between far left and radical left? I just want to know your take. <laughs> It's just far, far to the left, not, <laughs> not radical, not extremist, you know? Great, great. And I'll start saying that then. That's yeah, nice. far, just far left, um, not far left. I, I tend towards these pragmatic. I have to admit that also these pragmatic turns are in my life. And uh, at some point in my life, I was also a lot more uh, idealist than right now I am. 
What about you, Robbie? You asked the question, so what about you? <laughs> um, well, I think it wouldn't be much of a surprise if I say I'm also a supporter of the more left-wing politics, kind of. Why? Mainly because I associate it with um, social equality. For me personally, education is extremely important and it really lies within the basics and the ground of every nation. And as I tend to see politics from a very social perspective, which I'm not quite sure if it's right or wrong, I assume I should put myself more on the left side of the scale. Yeah, one additional note from my side, I'm even in a party or I work uh, with a party which is here in Vienna and is called Left. Yeah, it's right. It's, yeah. Uh, right. The it's Left Party. Left. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that is why I, I see myself that way. Okay, yeah. Shall we get uh, things started then? What What do you think about the current state of the democracy in the US, about the current state of affairs? Well, actually, Costa... Um I could babble on about that, but I'd be more interested to flip that question to you guys. And I want to see how you guys, not as U.S. citizens, see the election. What does it look like to you guys? It's going crazy. Is there anything you can compare it to? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen such a thing in my life uh, happening there. I mean, there are in history, if you look at history, there are some crazy elections, uh, but such a tight race for presidency, I've actually never seen. And I'm pretty, I was pretty excited. I need to confess, I was pretty excited. Right now, I feel a little relieved because uh, Biden is the candidate I would prefer um, and not Trump. But still, if you look at it from a European perspective, both of the candidates are not what I would prefer to have Absolutely. as a president. So we're saying it here on the podcast, loud and clear for everybody listening, that Biden is not a leftist. So if you think Biden's a socialist, stop listening now. Robbie, what do you think from the Europe? <laughs> <laughs> Robbie, what do you think from your perspective looking at the US? Well, my perspective as a European and more particularly as Eastern European is that um, I would say the states really have an enormous impact on the rest of the world. And considering the fact that the United States of America nowadays are a massive economical power and a trendsetter in many, many regards, I really don't want to waste time explaining what my vision is. Uh, I just want to go directly to Hugh and fire him with questions directly about what do you think are the key points about the elections, about the US politics? What do you think are the main issues? And what would you say about elections as someone who has uh, had the opportunity to observe this process for many, many years and not like us Europeans who kind of got in touch with U.S. politics and election, elections just recently. So, Hugh, tell us everything that comes on your mind in regard to U.S. politics. Well, I guess I was thinking about it, and I've noticed there seems to be a huge disconnect between the rhetoric, particularly from Donald Trump around this election, and the actual technocratic process by which it's conducted. We, you were asking what this election means for democracy. 
And my thought was, there's a lot of overheated rhetoric, and so far, no major wrenches in the way that there was, for instance, after the 2000 election. There wasn't this literal confusion about the technocratic process. There weren't mechanical errors that rendered tens of thousands of ballots uncountable that may have flipped the race one way or another. It seems slow but orderly if that makes any sense. And that seems so different from the rhetoric about the election that is is coming from it, whether it's being stolen, whether Republicans are trying to undermine confidence or faith in the election, whether Democrats are being accused of stealing it, of producing millions of absentee ballots out of nowhere. That seems farther apart than I would have expected. I also was worried about far more violence on election day and near election day. And that so far has not materialized. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, Hugh, I have another question for you. How exactly would you define politics? Because the US elections are very strongly related to global politics in general. And you said you were quite surprised by the fact that there was no mass violence in the day of the elections and prior to the elections. This gave me the feeling that the election day should necessarily be something that um, provokes people to be violent. Shouldn't politics work exactly the other way around? Sorry, I want to clarify. I was not expecting violence because violence is an inherent part of the American electoral system. Um, one of my... I'm not sure it's a hobby... Um, but I try to listen to and keep a loose eye on what center-right and far-right activists are saying. And particularly in the far-right, far, far-right extremist categories, there has been a lot of rhetoric about taking back America. You saw this plot a few weeks ago to kidnap and execute the governor of Michigan. Um, you've seen multiple arrests of, of far-right extremists and activists for threatening or plotting to attack either government institutions, in the case of groups like the Boogaloo Boys, or plotting to try and start a race riot or a race war in the terms of like neo-Confederate or neo-Nazi accelerationists who believe a race war is coming anyway and that they need to take actions to accelerate its arrival. Um, and there has just been a lot of rhetoric online about needing to, quote, do something to stop leftist Antifa from taking over America. And I'm glad it hasn't resulted in more violence yet. But it's also, to me, that rhetoric felt far, far more extreme than it has been before any previous election. You've also seen months of protests for racial justice um, and also for Donald Trump um, that have not often, but have resulted in violence towards protesters, towards police officers, towards government buildings and institutions, um, and often between different groups of protesters. Um, and this also feels very different from at least modern historical, modern elections in the last 20 or 30 years. I'm not sure that was a definition of politics, though. It's a pretty good synopsis, though, about what politics has looked like in the in the U.S. in the last half year and longer. Um, I don't think that there is a great definition. I mean, of course, if you want like an ancient Greek definition of politics, Ravi, it's who gets what, when, and where. 
but I don't know if that's a question that could be answered. Politics means different things to different people, but I think you did a great job of telling us what politics currently looks like. And I just have to double down. I agree with Hugh's analysis altogether or description. I mean, it's been really interesting. I don't know for you, Hugh, but it's really pulled on my heart a lot watching from so far away during this COVID time. I think it's been particularly strange to see everything that has actually occurred. And we've actually been stuck here. Like I haven't been home since February. I don't know the last time you were home. So it's a really different experience to see things going on at home and not, it's not like, not like we could do something, but to even be there. It's just very interesting. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes. Um, I also have not been home for, I think, almost exactly a year. I was last home in November. Um, on the one hand, it's been frustrating, not quite feeling stuck abroad, but feeling like I'm here. I'm relatively safe compared to my friends and family back home. And it also feels like there's less I can do from Europe. I might have, I probably would have carried a placard in a nice rally somewhere and deplored the state of modern politics safely from my middle class existence. But <laughs> it does feel isolating. Um, and in some ways, reading about and learning about what's going on through the filter of my Facebook news feed, through a computer screen, through Skype and phone calls with friends and family is very different from experiencing it from inside the U.S. Yeah, so so uh, what is actually happening? Because when I first woke up on Tuesday, I thought Donald Trump was going to be president. And now it is, seems to me like Joe Biden will be the next president. So what, can you maybe explain to me what what happened here? Well, uh, I can explain. I'll give one word that's been thrown around and then maybe we'll let our fantastic guest explain what it is. What we saw, you saw on Tuesday morning was called a red mirage as uh, analysts had referred to it before, and they'd been talking about it for a while. Maybe, Hugh, you can get into that and also explain why it's such a, a kind of emphatic mirage, maybe because of, say, mail-in ballots. Ah, uh, yes. Well, speaking of politicizing particular aspects of the election, one of the things that we've seen Donald Trump do again and again, and his surrogates within and without the Republican Party have been hammering home that they've been hammering home that mail voting as distinct somehow from absentee voting is a direct threat to democracy. It is unsafe, unsecure, and rampant fraud will result from sending ba ballots through the mail. Therefore, To be fair, before this election, there is statistically a, a higher chance that Democrats will vote using mail-in ballots than Republicans. And it's not entirely clear why that is, but it isn't something that has been observed um, in multiple election cycles. Do you have thoughts on that, Harry? Maybe it's because a lot of Democrat people or Democratic people, this time it's, I think, more dramatic because they think and handle the virus more seriously. And they don't believe that it is fraudulent and they vote and trust the system, whereas Trump supporters wholesomely believe that their vote would not be counted had it been sent in the mail. Therefore, they showed up in troves to vote in person. And that's why the entire map when you woke up, Costa, was red, because it was mainly Trump voters in high degrees that had come out and vote in person. 
I think the reason historically Democrats, uh, at least in recent years, have used mail-in ballots versus voting in person is there's a high percentage of Republicans that either are retired, A, or B, have a job that affords them to leave the workplace and go vote, whereas a lot of Democrats are working people and therefore either vote late into the night where their uh, vote does not show up on the screen or make an impact until later, so after work, or they mail in their vote. And that would be my answer to why you saw this giant red map that suddenly has started to have some blue parts as well. That That is an excellent, excellent suggestion. Great input, really great input. And I just wanted to mention in regard to what you uh, said earlier about the election day being a working day and that people need to actually find time and go and vote. I read some suggestions during my research on how we could actually improve the voting system. And this was one of the main points. Indeed, making the election day a holiday and giving all the people equal opportunity to go there and vote. But I guess that's something we're going to be covering um, later on in the episode. Yeah, I have a question here. It's for Hugh. It's for Hugh, our our American expert. Uh, do you know why the elections always are in the beginning of November? Uh, mm, my gut feeling, it says it has something to do with the harvest and the harvest being over. <laughs> wow. wow. Not wow. bad. Not bad. I asked the same question to Harry. I didn't know. He didn't know. <laughs> Not bad, not bad. It is true. Uh, it, so the election always takes place on the Tuesday following the first Monday in November. And this has, as you said, historical reasons. Um, or as I tell you now, it has historical reasons, but it is due to harvest. Um, because on Sunday, obviously, you can't go voting. You need to be in church or you used <laughs> to be in church. You were imagined to be in church in the grand American historical tradition. Correct, correct. Exactly, exactly. So election day couldn't be Sunday. So then Monday was reserved for travel to the election office because this could be far away from your, where you're staying. And so it was Tuesday because Wednesday used to be market day. So this was also not mm -hmm. possible, which is slightly confusing to me. But well, what do you, what do you think of it? Um, I think like a lot of traditions and voting mechanisms and all kinds of mechanisms in America, there are remnants of a past. I, I think a lot of people look at these traditions and think, wow, they've been there forever. But the thing is, they get established. And although America is a very young country, it's also one of the only, it's one of the oldest succinct governments in the world. Um, so it's a very interesting case that you get. You get a really young country, but with a really old government. Well, I think it also shows, maybe I'm spoiling the STS bit, but to me, this is reminiscent of some of the things STS studies where systems get set up. They're set up in a specific time and in a specific place with a specific imaginary of who's using them and what those people need. And then it's often becomes very difficult to change or update those systems once time passes once those assumptions are no longer accurate and once 
honestly, the country fundamentally changes. I think that's a fair point because I was also wondering in, uh, at the same time, this electoral college, it seems to me ancient. It seems to me like being, I don't know, from another time. And I think it is just what it is. It is from another time. Is that right? I mean, some version of this can be can be found in the Holy Roman Empire with the electors and their delightful choosing of the new emperor. Thank you, Europe. <laughs> <laughs> Harry, would you like, do you have some thoughts on our wonderful system? On the electoral college? Let's see. Well, I would say um, it is only, 2016 was only the fifth time in American history that um, you had had a president who did not win the popular vote, but it was the second time in 20 years. It is a very interesting system. And you can see, if you look at it from the founders, the way that it was set up, again, is from a different time. Hugh, you had a really nice thought when we were talking last night. Why was it set up this way, in your estimation? What, who did it protect and who did it serve? Well, I would argue that it represents a previous mode of thinking about what democracy is and how to ensure a, quote, newt unbiased or a fair democracy. The idea of popular rule was not established or not so established as the fundamental aspect of American democracy. You have the founders, as wonderful and beautiful as they were, represented a particular group of people. They were mostly wealthy merchants, wealthy landowners. They were slaveholders. They were the merchant and mercantile elite of the American colonies for the most part. And while it's true that America was far more, not egalitarian, but it was far easier to rise in American society than it would have been in a European society at the same time, it was still heavily skewed towards elites holding and wielding political power. And the idea of the mob was seen as a, not as a part of democracy, but as a threat to democracy, where a mob could overrule or overturn the rights the sacred American liberties and rights in its own interests. And so they put in certain safeguards to protect democracy from people, to put it bluntly. So you had things like the American system, there's a Congress with a house, a lower house and an upper Senate and a president. Only the, the House of Representatives was popularly elected. Right. The Senate was handled by the states. They were usually appointed by either the governor or by the state legislature. The Electoral College is part of this system. The Electoral College was supposed to be one step removed from popular democracy. And so the idea was that you would elect sensible men, and they were men, who would set aside the passions of the time and could fairly choose the best man to lead the country. Right. I think it's it's really interesting, the historical things about the Electoral College. And I'll try to pull that back in a way today to what we're, what we're looking at. But I do think it's valuable to think back that it might seem as though politics in America have only been contentious now. But if you look back, not that far, not that wide, There's been politics have throughout, except for a relatively small number of years, been contentious. Look at the early foundings. There was no known thought that this little experiment for land owning, slave holding males would exist or last. 
but it did and it had to change and it was contentious at every other point um but looking at now let's look at one contentious aspect with that is trump's discrediting of mail-in votes so we had a really really interesting topic last night where hugh really changed my opinion on it and talked about the importance of certain states having certain rights over how late, for example, they receive mail and their votes will be counted. Because some states, you know, it has to be postmarked by the election day, but they can receive it two days after, while another state could be three days after. So I thought it was just so interesting, Hugh, because you really changed my mind. I thought there should be a federal standard set for all this stuff. And yeah, maybe you could just explain that a little bit. It was, it was great. So, yes, we had the conversation from the comment from one of our wonderful Europeans among us about why doesn't America have a centralized election infrastructure with centralized rules under a centralized national system? And I, I gave the counterexample that, I, ironically, Donald Trump is a very good example of exactly why you do not want a centralized state in America controlling the mechanisms by which elections are conducted. Imagine, if you will, that there was a United States Department of Elections that set the rules, collected ballots, managed the process, was responsible for counting and adjudicating problems. Because of the structure of the U.S. government and the idea that the president is head of all federal departments, Donald Trump would be in charge of that department or he would be in charge of nominating a leader to that position. He would be directly able to order that department to do things. He would have enormous, an enormous amount of pressure he could exert on both the leaders of that department and the civil servants carrying it out. Imagine, if you will, that instead of just tweeting, stop the count, he had been able to order Bill Barr to stop counting, or if he'd passed an exec or signed an executive order telling the Department of Elections to stop counting ballots and not accept any more fraudulent ballots or fraudulently cast ballots from illegal voters. You just said Donald Trump tweeted, stop the counting. So that seems to me like undemocratic, isn't it? Well, I do. Depends how you define democracy, really. Who's to say what is democratic and what isn't and whether all votes should be counted or just some votes. But I would like to jump back to that question in a little bit. Or, well, just the counterexample. Donald Trump can call Tom Wolf, the governor of Pennsylvania, and tell him to stop counting. And Tom Wolf can laugh in his face. Donald Trump can call the State Board of Elections in Nevada and tell them to stop counting. And they do not have to listen to him. They don't even have to take the call. No, they don't. And there's another point. Um, Florida, for example, has an even more decentralized system where the counties are at some level responsible for administrating and adjudicating elections in their counties. And so even the governor of Florida legally can't tell certain poll jurisdictions what to do or how to collect ballots if it contradicts with state law. So you have a system that is very decentralized and where you have a lot of state and local leaders who are responsible for overseeing and managing a arguably 
theoretically apolitical process. And we can talk absolutely about ways that politics becomes involved in rules, regulations, and how people vote. But at least theoretically, the president has almost no power over the actual apparatus by which the elections are conducted. And I think that's a good thing. So you're saying in this case that the system or systems are working? I want, I will hold judgment on that until either a continuance or a transfer of power happens on January 20th. But so far, the fact that there's no evidence of widespread fraud with any of these systems, I think that speaks well. Yeah, I, I, I want to hang in there and ask you, I have heard this about these battleground or swing states. Can you maybe explain to us and our listeners what, what that is supposed to be? Yeah, well, um, I will say that when we're talking about swing states, let's just say journalism usually has a very, very small memory. They don't look very far back to think about and define what these swing states are. So for example, Pennsylvania is a swing state today. Ohio is a swing state today. Nevada is a swing state today. And Florida is a semi most of the time swing state today. And the thing is, those swing states change over time. In fact, the, the notion of swing state, there's not really an idea of how old it is because people have analyzed politics very differently for a long time in the US. And it, at one point, in fact, not the common man didn't really talk about politics all too much because people were very much in their own state with their own government, which was much more important. And national politics only reached every once in a while when it very much got in their face. It, It was really after the Civil War where national politics became a giant, giant concern of everybody, obviously, for obvious facts. Um, so I just showed a map, actually, to Costa, which is really interesting because he was and he was I have to say, I, I will describe your behavior as absolutely shocked to see the wave of red, wave of blue, wave of red, and to see these the idea of the swing state completely disappear and think, oh my God, well, I guess they're not really swing states if they're like red, blue, red, blue. But that says that they're a swing state. But then suddenly California is red for 20 years at a time. And today it's blue. So just what is a swing state and how does this come up with it? I think I might have confused the listeners more than told them what it is. But maybe, Hugh, you can clarify my points and make me sound smart. So I give it to you. Thank you. I'll see what I can do. So the idea, because the electoral college, each state has a number of electors that's based on their population. The total number of electors is based on the combined number of senators and representatives plus three, because they gave three electors to Washington, D.C. to let them participate in national elections. And because you only have 538 electors, they do not exactly match up to populations. And you cannot assign them exactly purely based on populations without some errors. So it winds up that some states have a disproportionate power representation than others. And it also means that most states either have a majority Republican or a majority Democrat. They're going to get like everyone knows California is going to go for the Democrats. The election is going to happen, obviously. But if you're a Republican in California, your vote does not count for much. In the same way, if you're a Democrat in my home state of Tennessee, my state has gone overwhelmingly for Republicans for the last 16 years. Mm -hmm. And 
my vote for the presidency ultimately doesn't matter that much there. But if you live in a swing state, those are the states where the margins between Republicans and Democrats are very close. And where those states, depending on turnout, depending on who's voting, depending on voter suppression, if those states go one way or another, they can actually sway the electoral college and determine who gets elected. That's a swing state. So then to challenge that, what is the what is Georgia today? Is Georgia going to be a swing state now? Ooh. Well, once again, there is no standard definition of swing state because there is no standard definition. There is no federal government agency that determines who is winning and who is losing. It's often left up to the media and a complicated socio-technical group of experts to determine based on polling. Well, we were promised that Texas could be a swing state in this election and that while the vote was closer than it looked at the outset, it is not a swing state right. this time. Does that help? Yes, it helps. It helps. I think uh, I kind of understand a little bit. <laughs> But still, still, there's one question to me. In, in Europe, we tend to have like five to ten different parties. And when I look at the US, there seems to me that there's only the Republicans and the Democrats. Is that true? I told Costa that there actually are many parties in the US. You just only see two parties for the last, say, 100 years that have gotten more than three, four, five percent of the vote, except in the 60s where you, let's just call it what it is, you had a segregationalist running and got the South taking the votes from what used to be the Democrat South. There are multiple parties, in fact. They're just not very significant. And if you go back, party names, everything has switched and switched and switched again. I think this two-party system at least looks here to stay for a while, Hugh. What do you think? Well, originally, America was founded not to have any political parties or factions, as they were called back then. Federalists. Um, and so our system was not imagined to have parties, but almost always evolved into a two-party system. Um, and while there always have been third parties to various degrees, the argument I always got learning history was, well, there's a third party, it emerges, it brings new ideas, it pushes the boundaries of what's acceptable, and then it gets sucked into one or the other of the main parties. Its ideas get co-opted, its ideas get brought in. There are a number of examples of this. For instance, um, the Green Party, arguably, has been mostly subsumed by the Democrats, or people who care about consumer safety have been pulled into the Democrats, whereas the segregationist parties almost always existed within one or other of the traditional political parties, and at one major point, switched from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. Would you say then, you, I had never thought about it this way, but it just jumped into my mind. Would you say that this is maybe the American version of building a coalition or a coalition building? It might be more ideological, where as if, instead of having multiple parties and then building a coalition with two or more parties, the ideas just get subsumed into the party. Well, I would actually argue that the idea of a coherent political party actually really hides the cracks and fissures that exist within the existing parties. All you have to do is look at the fierce uh, – it's not quite a fight, but the fierce debates between far-left progressive activists in the primaries, between whether Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton would be the Democratic nominee and would represent the Democratic Party. 
even even just yesterday, there was a let's call it a small kerfuffle between these kind of centrist Dems in Congress and the more radical Dems, both kind of blaming each other for losing seats in this most recent election. I really think that in the States, for some reason, the elections have become some kind of a cultural thing, a cultural norm. And this is so much different in Europe because elections in Europe are elections for a president. And in the States, so much money are spent and invested on campaigns and colorful balloons and people are shown on TV literally 90% of the time. You can see how some of the national channels are broadcasting the debates and the commentators around the election uh, 24-7 for the past weeks. And at the same time, unfortunately, there are so many people excluded from the voting, not only US non-US citizens, but also ex-felons and people who are somehow mentally challenged. So I really want to summarize it and in your opinion, guys, what is wrong with the system? And since we're here not only to talk, but also to offer a solution, what can we do to actually improve the voting system, not only in the States, but in general? Where shall the change begin? Hugh, you take this one. I could have a whole separate podcast on the shortcomings of system. Oh, yes. I think, one, it's important to remember that voting has always, like, who votes and who is allowed to vote has always been open for debate in America. If even back to the early republic, one of the earliest debates was about whether or not property requirements were going to be capped for voting. Uh, and those mostly went away and universal white male suffrage mostly happened over the first 20 or 30 years of the American Republic. There was one very small civil war, I want to say in Delaware over it, but for the most part, universal male suffrage was accepted pretty quickly in America. But then almost every other group has had to fight tooth and nail for representation and inclusion in the political process. And there have always been systemic barriers erected to keep so-called either undesirables or the wrong sort of people from voting. Um, or you also have political philosophies, the idea, for instance, that it wasn't individual voters who mattered, but households. And therefore, you only needed the male head of household to vote because he could represent the political interests of everyone under his care. And in fact, women should be protected from voting, the argument went, because they were too pure for politics. And being involved in politics would corrupt women from their pure state of homemaker of caring for the home while the husband cared for the outside world. I'm not saying that these are desirable or correct, but this was a common understanding of politics in the 19th century. Specifically, we were talking about how to improve the system. I think the biggest thing, ease of access to voting. There have been a lot of barriers in the name of protecting from voter fraud. And while voter fraud is a concern, I don't think there's been any evidence that is it is the threat that it has been presented as. And I think a lot of laws exist to make it more difficult to vote or proving your identity an onerous process. Systemic barriers have been erected to keep mainly poor um, and non-white Americans. In fact, North Carolina actually lost a constitutional challenge to its voting practices a few years ago. I believe it's still under litigation because, of course, it is. <laughs> but the Republican legislature there 
systemically studied how different racial groups voted and then gutted every single voting mechanism that was primarily used by non-white voters in what I believe a judge referred to as a, a surgical exercise in voter minority voter suppression. I see. I have one more question because Robbie actually reminded me of something which I learned in a political science lecture back in the days, like a couple of years ago. And it was called gerrymandering or something. That's or actually exactly what uh, he was talking about at, is the, it? at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> is that the thing? Okay. I see. Really quick. Gerrymandering is the process of drawing districts. Normally, how you draw those districts and who gets included and who is counted can actually dramatically shape who wins and loses. You can use maps of voting patterns. You can split a district full of Democratic voters in half and then put just enough presumed Republicans in those districts so that those districts will be red. And what you do with the leftover Democrats is you pack as many Democrats as you can in as few districts. So you have a lot of very blue districts, very Democratic districts, and then a lot of districts that are 55% Republican and 45% Democrat. And that way you can dilute votes so that one party can gain a disproportionate advantage in the election despite the popular vote. Sounds undemocratic. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, hey, fun fact, gerrymandering, just like many other things in life, is actually named after a guy called Jerry, from what I remember he told us. However, another fun fact is that we actually created a poll on our Instagram account asking people and our listeners if they think voting should be mandatory for all citizens. And it was quite striking that we literally got 50-50 results and, and it seemed like people couldn't really find a middle ground on whether it's a good idea or not. Does mandatory voting necessarily mean that the right of free speech is taken away from you? What would you guys say? I do think if voting was mandatory in the United States, um, Kanye West would have gotten a lot more than 60,000 votes. <laughs> I, I agree. Hugh, what would happen if you told an American that they have to go vote? They would do everything in their power not to vote. They would defy you to their dying breath while clutching a heavy, fully automatic weapon in their cold, dead hands. Um, I do. I have to admit, even as a very liberal American, I still am somewhat uncomfortable with state mandates like this, with a state telling me that I have to do something. Um, and I also think if your goal is to increase turnout and increase democratic participation, forcing people to try and vote in unjust, opaque, deliberately difficult systems is not going to create the outcome that you want. Um, and I think there are better ways to increase voting and increase democracy that it don't involve a literal ballot mandate. Which, which one? Which ways? For instance, Donald Trump will hate this, but a lot of states have been experimenting with the idea of universal mail-in voting, making it as easy as possible to cast a vote. I believe Oregon mailed every single resident a mail-in ballot. I think Europeans have a, a different relationship and a different idea to what a state is and what kind of records it should keep. There is no national database of voters in the U.S. that is maintained by the states. There is no national ID 
No, it's it's really it's really interesting, and um, I invite all Europeans, please, because you bring really really interesting perspectives on the U.S. Um, it, it does take a lot of skills and knowledge to be able to analyze this successfully, or, or to be able to analyze the, the and, and integrate the differences, like you just talked about, not having these federal systems, not having even a thought of creating these federal systems. Like for me, the fact that my identification is my driver's license that says California and not the United States is completely normalized. But Costa, if you had an identification that said Bavaria, it would be like, wow, this must be from before the unification of Germany. What is this old thing, right? That is true. <laughs> Which king do I have to swear fealty to? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> is King Ludwig still on the table? Anyway. Uh, back to the mandatory vote. Oh, Robbie, when you asked the question, what, what was your idea when you made this poll to, to, to think about this mandatory voting? I think it's an interesting idea, and I am really surprised that we got 50-50. Honestly, I do think it's inherited somewhere in my background. As you guys know, I'm from Bulgaria and the political system there is not very presentable and it's not a great example of how such a system is supposed to work. Um, so it has been quite a debate in Bulgaria for the past years as well. Um, if people should be obligated to vote because the voting engagement is so low, it's just ridiculous. And I won't hide that there were also some extreme and more controversial discussions whether people who cannot write and read should be allowed to vote, as those are usually the ones whose votes get both. So this is quite a complex debate, uh, which on one hand, I understand why it should be like that in order to eliminate those practices of selling and buying votes. But obviously, you cannot say that the vote of one person is more valuable than the vote of another person. And so that's where I'm coming from. I was just wondering how this could be applied in the case of the USA. I I'm I just wanted to I might have my history wrong here but there was a time in Bulgaria right where voting was mandatory and it wasn't that long ago am I right about that or at least or at least strongly recommended however it seems as if only one party won those elections Yes that was um during the communist regime but I would not say it was uh, strongly advised for you to vote because you simply didn't have many options to vote for <laughs> <laughs> So every vote counted right <laughs> Well I think it's also important to to think about that we in some ways obsess about the concept of one person voting and the act of voting but if you don't have the systems procedures transparency, if you don't have a whole lot of other things around the act of voting, then it just becomes a symbolic farce that is utterly meaningless and disconnected from how actual politics is conducted in a country. And you see this in um, one of the arguments about authoritarian countries is they have this ritual of voting. It's encouraged. Sometimes it's mandatory. Sometimes it's, you know, if you want political favors or connections or simply not to be hassled, you will vote. And it's very important and utterly meaningless at the same time. And everyone in those countries understands that their vote doesn't matter, that it's just a performance that has no connection to the inherent legitimacy of the regime they are existing in or theoretically voting for. Um, 
So. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that's something we should avoid because people should not think that this is something they just go and do and that's it. But actually should know that our voices matter and that our future is in our hands. And that's why it's so important for people to educate themselves about the opportunities and make an informed decision on the election day. So this kind of reminds me of something you mentioned earlier about the different states and how there are different laws and different and different requirements. And there is no centralized system or a platform or whatever. So it got me thinking now, every person who runs for a president and their team go through all the states and they perform for the people. They tell the people stuff and they have this whole presidential campaign. But I unfortunately cannot find the logic behind it because different states have different people and different people want different stuff and they have different traditions, different cultures, different expectations. So you prepare yourself in a way that you are likable uh, in the states you're currently performing for so people can vote for you. But this can totally contradict with the promises you give in another state. And you should still remain within the framework of your politics and your campaign and what you're standing for. So that's what I mean. It's, for me, it's just very, very confusing. I think so. Yes, you're talking about um, how... Mm, I would not necessarily break that down across state lines, but I would say there's an imagination of who or what is an interested party or who or what is a group who is deserving of attention, whose needs, whose political demands, whose political desires are worthy of catering to. Um, often those people exist in swing states. Um, but I, I get what you mean. And I would argue that that was a lot easier in the age before the Internet. Where politicians, it was much easier to give radio addresses that were not going to be recorded, targeted at specific groups. It was much easier to give a campaign speech before there were smartphones filming everything. Um, so that's not actually an answer to your question. I apologize. What exactly was your question again? My question is that in Europe, as you know, probably we don't have states. And yes, in some bigger countries, such like Germany, we have the so-called Bundesländer. So it's very hard for me to imagine that each state is so independent because normally the president just goes out there in the public, um, gives a speech and presents his or her visions about the future of the country, right? And you don't have to agitate different states based on their expectations of you because those could differ a lot. So for me, it's just a very interesting phenomenon uh, on how how the whole preparation for those campaigns work, because it must be hell of a research to be able to precisely determine what to say um, in each different state so people vote for you. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a, it's a really interesting point. It's, it is really complicated for these campaign managers to, you know, you have to have a, a federal plan, but it has to be localized for different places uh, where you go to. Um, but I, I would kind of push back and say not to, to lump some the localism that does exist in some European countries. And I think it might be a chance to really think about that, that there is maybe some value to a localized type of politics. I mean, 
it's extremely important. And I think something that's kind of undercut in a lot of discussions about elections is we like to think in everything in terms of federal, 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 big president, this, and no one really seems to give a damn about local politics to a certain extent. It's not talked about, but they impact your life probably more so than what's happening at the federal level. And I mean, something that does showcase that local politics exists is how European parties and places have responded in the crisis. For example, in Germany, there has been different like Bundesländer that have responded differently to the COVID crisis and had different um, kind of responses to it, even though there was an already existing national plan. The difference is in the US, there wasn't a whole lot of national plan for COVID and then the states were left to do something. So I, I think that there is a place for local politics and maybe it's something that on a whole scale, every society should think about. And maybe there is something to look at it with the US as some type of example in this case. There rarely has been recently, but here again, there might be. Mm-hmm. Totally, yes. Great input, Harry. And one more fun fact or more informative fact is that this politics of adapting to the local or global considerations in sociology is called globalization. And it's used not only in politics, but different brands also use it to adapt to the local market in different countries. However, as last words, I would like to ask you guys if there is a message you would like to pass on to our listeners. Is there something, be it regarding politics, voting, or in general, that you would like to communicate and share with our audience? Count the votes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, count the votes. And don't stop counting the votes. Don't stop counting. Don't, don't stop, stop counting. counting. Don't stop counting. And in 2024, 2022, 2021, every election, local level, vote. I know you said in California, if you're a Democrat, your vote doesn't count. I don't care. It counts. Every vote counts. Hugh is ready to talk and explain what he meant, but <laughs> vote. Always go vote. It's your own. It, you get very few rights. And yet I'm not going to lie and say the thing that yet it's your God-given right. It's not. People are trying to take it away from you, actively trying to take it away from you, whether it's gerrymandering everything. Make sure that you're registered, be prepared, vote, and check on your vote. Now it's time to send us your topics. Pick whatever comes to your mind. We will deal with it, even if it's obscure or very niche. Challenge us. Simply send us an email at science-slot-machine at gmail.com. Again, it's science-slot-machine at gmail.com. No spaces. We look forward to hearing from you.